for a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those words that we have just read, and we thank you for the words that we will uh, now unfold. We ask that your Holy Spirit would unfold, unveil these words as it were to us, so that we might grow in our faith and be more diligent representatives of you in whatever sphere of life you have placed us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today, we come to the big kahuna, that moment that some of you have been waiting for. 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. David and Goliath. Who hasn't heard of David and Goliath? It'd be very difficult for you to find someone in our culture who hasn't heard this story. And when I say story, I I mean historical story. It's an historical event. It's not made up. Even if someone has never opened up a Bible, nor darkened the door of a church, they'll probably know about this story. Or, Or they will know some phrase that comes off of the story. Here's how it goes. You've heard this. That game was like David and Goliath. Our our guys had no chance of winning. We couldn't have won. It was David and Goliath. Or something like this. That guy was massive. Did you see how huge he was? He was like Goliath. You hear that all the time. People just know the story. Now, that's good that people know the story, right? Maybe. You know the story. You've heard it. Here's the sad truth about this story. You'd be hard-pressed, hard-pressed, to find a story in the Old Covenant that has been more misinterpreted, misused, and misapplied than David and Goliath. By well-meaning teachers and preachers, it is very easy to misunderstand this passage and get it wrong. Now, when a, when a preacher does that, and I should say, every preacher, sadly, at some time in his ministry, will say something from the pulpit that does damage to somebody unintentionally. If he does it intentionally, he's in a world of trouble. If he does it unintentionally, he's still in trouble, but not a world of it. Okay? We make mistakes. Now, people, pastors that I respect, have used this passage and done damage to God's people by misapplying it and having the people go out thinking that they should be slaying the giants in their lives. Those are the messages. As I was studying, I was looking through various sermon titles and I was listening to, you know, I listened to parts of sermons. There was one pastor who I greatly respect who has gone home to be with the Lord. He's not even from this country. Who used this passage to rail, and I mean rail, against theological liberalism. He went crazy against the spirit of the ecumenical movement. Now, the ecumenical movement is bad. I want nothing to do with it. That says that all Christians, irrespective of denomination, all liberal Christians who who don't even believe in the Apostles' Creed, we should get together and work together and make this a better place. Negative. 
If we want to get together and protest, uh, I don't know, a billboard going up somewhere or something like that, that's fine. Any type of theological thing, we have, darkness has nothing to do with light. That's what he used this passage for. This passage has nothing to do with the ecumenical movement. This passage has nothing really to do with you destroying the giants in your life or identifying the giants in your life. What are the, who's the Goliath in your life? I can fire off about 20 sermon titles right now. What does Goliath look like in your life? How to gain David's courage. How to gain David's strength. How to be bold as David. The funniest thing I heard was uh, from the pastor of 10th Presbyterian uh, in Philadelphia. Dr. Liam Gallagher. He, he was mentioning how this passage is misused. And he said, and I hope he was totally joking, that the five smooth stones that David used were obviously the five points of Calvinism. And everybody started laughing. I thought, I bet you somewhere someone has actually done that. And, and that's just flat out crazy and dangerous. This passage ultimately isn't even about David. It's about God. It's about God vindicating his name. It's about God vindicating his honor. It's about God keeping his promise. Now, this is a long passage. I'm not going to read the entire passage. It's like 54 verses. You know the basic story, so let me give you the highlights. If you look in the first verse, the Philistines come into Israel. And it says, they come to this part of Israel which belongs to Judah. That's very important. Okay? They come into a place that belongs to Judah. That's David's tribe. That's David's turf. But more importantly... It's Jesus' turf, because Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. And this is a problem. The Philistines have invaded the land that God had given to our Old Testament forefathers. So, the Israelites go out. And this is the way it went. There was a valley in between them, and they stood on two mountains. Really gigantic hills, really. And every now and again, they would have a skirmish, and then they'd leave. You know, war was different then. And then you know what happens. This giant from the Philistines comes out. And he literally is a giant. The text gives a great deal of attention to what this guy looked like. His armor, how tall he was. He was, frankly, an aberration of nature. Exactly how tall he was, it doesn't matter. He was massive. He was Goliath. And everybody was afraid of him. Now, why would the Holy Spirit have the writer talk so much about how big he was? Here's why. Remember why the people picked Saul to be king? Because he was big. When, when Samuel was ordered by God to go anoint David as king... And David is God's chosen guy. What does Samuel do in his mind? He's looking at them saying, oh, this has got to be the guy. And what does the Lord tell Samuel? That's not him. It's not him. It's none of these guys. Because man looks on the outward appearance. God knows the real truth. 
That's why he's described. Now, he really did exist. This happened. But he goes into such detail to, to remind us that this is the problem. And he comes out and he starts railing against them. And in verse 8, he says, are you not the servants of Saul? No. That's an insult to God. An Israelite should not have thought of themselves as servant of Saul. Now, they could say that in a secondary sense. I am your servant. We don't know what it's like to live under a monarchy. We don't. But when you're under a monarchy, you you talk to them differently. And in the ancient world, this would be a common thing. But for the enemy of God standing in the land of Judah to say you're the servants of Saul is a sleight of hand against the God of Israel. Goliath does not mention Yahweh. He does not mention the name of the living God. You can break the third commandment by never mentioning God's name. Unbelievers do it all day, every day. And so do we at times by our behavior. And this guy is coming out. He's the height of arrogance. This is satanic arrogance. This is not quite, but it's similar to Satan saying, I am going to take God's throne. Now, at least in this one, Goliath actually could have physically done it. Satan was completely outmatched from the get-go. But what are the Israelites' response? When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, I always love it, and it is really neat, isn't it, when the readings match up with what I'm preaching from. We just started 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, 1-7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Well, Saul and his buddies here do not have a spirit of power. They do not have a sound mind. They are terrified. Now, from a military point of view, who should have been going out there to challenge Goliath? Saul. He's the guy. He's the biggest. He's the baddest. He's supposed to be the brightest. But they better not call Saul on this one because he's a a flat-out wimp. Now, David comes along. Now remember, David is the youngest of Jesse's sons. Jesse's older sons go up to the battle, and and David, as a kid, you know, a younger one, he's in his late teens probably, he's going and he's checking things out. That's TV back in the day. You know, they didn't have TV. Let's go watch a battle. So he goes and checks it out, and then he has to go home, go check it out and go home. So Jesse then tells him, hey, listen, you know, go go check on your brothers. Jesse's nervous about his sons. So he gives them provisions and says, give these, give this cheeses and whatnot to the, to the captains and whatnot. And check on your brothers and let, come back and let me know how they're doing. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Well, Jesse could do that. So David leaves the sheep with a servant and he goes and he obeys his father's wishes. Do we have any problems here yet? David do anything wrong? Dad says go. He goes. Oh, that's a novel, that's a novel thing, isn't it? Dad says go, and the kid goes. And this is a grown man. Did you hear that? Dad said go, and the kids go. So he leaves the supplies. 
And he goes, and as he comes up, that's when Goliath comes out. Now, we can gather from the text that when David had been there watching before, that Goliath hadn't been around. Because David shows a great deal of surprise. And everybody, on, right around verse 23 and 24 now, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And then they got, start talking about earthly things. The guy who beats this guy is really, he's, he's going to get some benefits from the king. There's, a, you know, if, you know, do you think you could take him? No. Man, I wish I could, because boy, man, we'd get some land, probably get his good looking daughter, get some money. We'd be heroes. This is locker, this is locker room talk. You know, if we, if, if I could beat him, I'd get rewarded. If, if you could, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. Are you going to go? No, Saul's not even going. A spirit of fear is defended on, on the people. Now, David's cruising around, making sure he has the story straight. David is doing some reconnaissance here. Then David spoke to the men who stood by saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? I'm in verse 26 now. And takes away the reproach from Israel. And then he says this very important thing that so far no one else has said. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That's the first time we hear this covenantal language. This, uncirc- this, this, is, the, this is a put down of Goliath, this uncircumcised dog. Who is he to come out here and defy the armies of who? The living God. David is here giving testimony to the covenantal battle. Circumcision was the sign of the Old Testament that said, you're one of God's people. Baptism has replaced circumcision. Baptism is clean. It's not even really messy. Circumcision was painful and bloody, and only men could get it. Women did not receive the covenantal sign. Baptism has been uh, literally exploded and given to all believers. Men, women, children, infants. Everybody can receive the covenantal sign. Once that covenantal sign is on you, whether you like it or not, God owns you. You've been baptized? You cannot get unbaptized. It'd be very difficult to get uncircumcised in the Old Covenant. It doesn't work. God has placed a claim on you. And that claim is that he will take care of you. That claim is that he will defeat Goliath. But that we do have things to do as well. And that is what David is doing. And now what do you think happens? Well, in verse 28, Eliab, the oldest brother, heard what he spoke and he goes off on David. Now, we don't know exactly what was going through Eliab's mind. The text doesn't tell us, but we can pretty much figure it out. Who, this little runt is following me around again. Now remember, Eliab, at some time in the past, had gotten passed over. The right of kingship, if it was going to be one of Jesse's sons, really should have been the oldest. That's, that's, that's the rules. The rule of the firstborn son. 
But God's the one who makes that rule, and he can do whatever he wants. He overturns that rule. And remember, Jesse didn't even think that David was worth being in the lineup because Jesse parades all of his sons, and Samuel says, um, do you have another one? Oh, yeah, there's a shepherd boy. Go get him, please. And David's the guy. David's brothers could not have been happy about that. And he's following him around. Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep? I know your pride and insolence of your heart. You've come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Literally, he says that. What have I done now? Again? You're going to yell at me, older brother? So he leaves his brother and he goes off and continues his reconnaissance, figuring out what's going on. What do we see here so far of man's sinfulness? We see fear amongst the people of God who should not be afraid of anything. God has not given us a spirit of fear, Paul told Timothy. Paul was in a dungeon, a Roman dungeon. His head was literally almost on the block at this point. God has not given us a spirit of fear. It's the same spirit in the Old Testament. Same spirit that you have is here. But Israel's terrified of this guy. They don't, need, they don't even have enough sense to say, you know what? Forget about his terms. Let's send 10 guys out and take him. Why not? There's no rules in war. There's no Geneva Convention at this point. Send 10 guys out. As soon as he turns his back, send 10 guys after him. They don't do that. They're completely confused and terrified. They've forgotten their history that God has beaten the Philistines many, many times over. And that the Philistines have no claim to this land. David is the only one who seems to get this. So he says to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Now, we've seen fear on the part of the Philistine, uh, on the part of the Israelites. We've seen confusion on the part of the Israelites. We've seen uh, bitterness and anger within the family of Jesse with, with Eliab. We've seen nothing good from God's people thus far, except what David has said. Nobody in the camp of Israel is talking about God. They're focusing on Goliath. They're focusing on what they might get if they beat Goliath. They're completely worldly centered. And that is a big problem. That's the major problem in this passage. That's the sin problem in this passage. The people of God are too concerned with earthly things at this point. Now, let's give them a little bit of a slack. They are in the midst of a battle. They're not in 21st century America, safe and sound. But... Nobody's talking about God. We have no evidence that they're doing any kind of praying. Nothing. They're not even military strategists. They're just wondering, wow, man, I, man, I'd like some land. I'd like to beat that guy. I can't do it. That's what you're hearing. Got thousands of wimps here who aren't talking about God. We have this young shepherd boy comes up. Don't worry about it. I've got this. Now imagine what's going through Saul's mind. You don't have to. He says it. You, you, can't, you can't do this. <laughs> you can't do this. This guy's been a warrior from his youth. And guess what? You're just a youth. Now David then gives testimony to what he's done. 
that as a shepherd, a bear at least once, and a lion at least once, had tried to steal and devour some of the flock. And David rescued the flock from the lion and the bear. Now, let's not read too much symbolism into that, but what does Jesus call himself? The great shepherd. When Jesus talked talked about being the great shepherd, everybody in Israel would have been thinking about what we call Psalm 23. They would have realized, oh, I, I know exactly what he's saying here. He's claiming to be God. I'm the great shepherd. That's a bold claim to do in Israel when Jesus said that. We read it in John 10. Oh yeah, Jesus is the great shepherd. You have to put yourself in first century Israel and realize what would have gone through an ancient Israelite's mind. He's claiming to be the, the shepherd of Psalm 23. The guy who guides you through the valley of the shadow of death. Bold, bold claims. And David is doing the same thing here. But notice, he gives glory to God. In verse 37, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And then Saul says, go, and the Lord be with you. That's the first time we see anybody else saying the Lord. David here is testifying. He is giving glory to God. He's not saying he did it. He's the secondary cause. He's saying that God delivered him. That's the point of the passage, is that God delivers his people. Do we have giants in our lives? Yes, I'm sure we do. Are there Goliaths waiting for you tomorrow morning? Probably. And guess what? Who cares? Who's on your side? The God of all the universe is your king. Nobody can hurt you. What does Jesus say? He says, do not fear those who can kill the body and don't do anything else. Don't don't worry about that. And what else does he say in that passage? He says, I will show you who to fear. Ooh, second clause. I'll show you who to fear. You fear him who once he's destroyed body can destroy both body and soul in hell forever. Oh, different perspective. Let me ask you, are you so focused on this world and this world's problems and your personal problems or our, pers- our, our corporate problems that we take our eyes off God, not realizing that God is in charge of the army. I feel like singing who is on the Lord's side, but I'm not going to. Even with my best voice, I wouldn't do that to you. So Saul puts the armor on David. Makes sense, right? Makes sense. And David's, he can't do it. It's too big. Takes it off. All right, go ahead. So he takes them off and he gets those five smooth stones. And we know the rest of the story. He comes out and Goliath freaks. Goliath is insulted. Totally insulted. Am I a dog? In verse 43. Am I a dog? David was probably thinking, yeah, you are. You're an uncircumcised Philistine dog. That you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. Now, his gods is the the Philistine gods. He's cursing using pagan names. 
And a Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. This is almost like, this is almost like a wild, wild west scene here. Yeah. This is high noon. Come here. You can almost hear it, right? Come here, boy. I'll make short work of you. This is, this is, this is, this is going to be fun. This is going to be easy. Okay? And Goliath's deal was, if I beat your champion, you're our servants. And if he beats me, we'll be your servants. That's it. Even Stevens, right? Good deal. Now, someone's risen up to the challenge. And Goliath is probably thinking, yeah, good job. You send me this kid who doesn't have armor and he's got nothing. Goliath is so well padded that somebody has to carry his shield. In other words, physically, David is outgunned. He is going to lose without God. Think about it, gentlemen. You're talking about David. Is, your, your average Israelite at this time is about 5'5", five, 5'6". Five, five, Nothing wrong with being 5'6". Goliath wasn't 5'6". At the very least, he was like 6'8". Possibly even larger into the 8 and 9. Like I said, he's a, he's a freak of nature. He's a sign of nature. Phys, a physical sign of nature gone bad. Bad. And he's defying the armies of God. And David says, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. He's basically saying, Big deal. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You see, this is the point of the passage. David is is the human vessel by which God is going to vindicate his name. This passage is not about you killing the giants in your life. It's about the third commandment. It's about honoring God's name. Now, how do you honor God's name? By killing the giants in your life. And the giants in your life mostly are in the mirror. You look at them. You look at them. You're the problem in your life. I'm the problem in my life. We're our own worst enemies. Because we don't tell ourselves the gospel enough. We don't believe it enough. Because we don't hear it. We don't, you have to tell the gospel to yourself over and over and over. God's with me. God's with me. God's with me. Because we forget. And we go out there and it's easy to get afraid. It's real easy. I know I'm not the only one who's had a sleepless night thinking about the future. Worrying. Children, your parents think about you a lot. They think about your future. Because they know what's out there. And they're trying to prepare you. Because they want the best for you and they love you. And ultimately, it's about God's people honoring his name by their life. David's actions are bold and courageous. But that's not the point. The point is he's doing it because this Philistine dog has defied the armies of the living God. You see, it goes to David's motive. David isn't trying to improve his life. 
David isn't thinking about slaying the giants in his life. He's not thinking about any of those self-help books that use this text. He is thinking, this guy, is, this guy has said bad things about God. And I will kill him. This is physical. I will kill this Philistine dog. And that's how we have to think about the, the foes of God, but not in a physical way, because that's a change in the Old Covenant. We don't have the power of the sword. We don't need it. Paul says our weapons are for the demolishing of arguments. We don't kill people. We talk to them. And they present their case. And if I can be just real frank, we slice and dice their case. Not them. We slice and dice their case and say, "Um, your worldview is sand. Your worldview isn't even sand, it's mud. Come over here, I'll show you solid ground. That's how we fight. That's how we should be thinking about all of the foes of God now. That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul did. And he says, the Lord will deliver me into your hand. I'm going to take your head. And this day, I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines, not just Goliath, but all of the Philistines, to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. Why? So that the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all the assembly, now he's talking about the Israelites, then all the assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. This is, the, this is the climax of the whole thing. He says, really? That's what you're going... I, no. I'm going to feed the carcasses of your entire army to the beasts. And then the assembly. He's talking about the Israelites then. He's basically saying, you know, my brothers back there and Saul, they're back there shaking in their boots. In five minutes... Everything is going to change, Slick. And that's exactly what happens. You know the story? He slings that rock at him, hits him right in the forehead, bullseye. Goliath falls flat down. Everybody must have been stunned, including Goliath, as he was going down. The only one who's not stunned is David, because David's not thinking about himself. He's not really even thinking about Goliath. He's thinking about the people of God and vindicating God's name. That's where David gets this energy from. It's the Spirit of God. Now, why doesn't it say in this text, and the Spirit of the Lord descended upon David like it does with the judges? Because it already has in chapter 16. The Spirit of the Lord, as soon as that oil hit his forehead... The Spirit of the Lord descended upon him for his kingly service, and this is it. The Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and that's why Saul was shaking in his boots. David had the Spirit of the Lord upon him. The text does not have to tell us. And the fact that the text doesn't tell us is is pregnant with meaning because the text has already told us in what we consider to be the previous chapter. That helps us to understand Psalm 51 when David realizes, I've sinned. David saw what happened to Saul. 
So when we read Psalm 51, he says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He's, he's not talking about his salvation. He's talking about, don't, don't take that spirit. Don't send that evil spirit to me, please. He saw what happened to Saul. So the Israelites rout them. And what does Saul do? Here's what sin does to you. Sin gets you so confused that you can't even see in front of you. Saul turns to Abner, who's a great man, by the way. And he says, Who, whose son is this? Who is this kid? Okay, I'm missing something here. David was Saul's armor bearer. David was um, Saul's minstrel in the gallery when, the, when, the, when that evil spirit came. Saul doesn't even recognize David. That's how confused this guy is. He doesn't even recognize one of his main servants. David has to later then, you know, tell him. He comes to the camp with the head. Whose son are you? And he says. I'm the son of Jesse. There it is. I'm the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. David must have been thinking, I'm here all the time. I'm best friends with your son. You don't recognize me? That's what sin does to you. Saul's not only afraid, Saul can't think. Saul's not only afraid, he doesn't recognize this kid. How can you not recognize your son's best friend who's in court with you all the time? See, we're seeing a shift in the narrative here. This is when David starts to become king. Because I didn't get to it, but in the text... David says, I used to tend sheep. I used to tend sheep. That's funny. I thought you still were a shepherd boy. No. The Spirit of God was telling David, things are going to be changing now. The guard is changing. The point, brothers and sisters, is that God vindicates his name. And the point is, is that the way we live our lives brings dishonor to God's name. You can violate God's name by not saying a word. And that's a shame. But on the flip side, you can bring honor to God's name without saying a word. Being a good witness for Christ does not mean that you're going around 24-7 shoving the gospel down people's throats. It means bearing up under the cross that God has given you with dignity and honor. And sharing the gospel with people, mostly through your life, so that they wonder what makes you tick, so that then they ask you, how on earth are you getting through this? But so many Christians are like this all the time, you know, whining and complaining about what's, what's going to happen. Why would they follow our God when we're so afraid? Why not be a Philistine? Why not buy a self-help book? Shoot yourself up with, you know spiritual steroids, why be a Christian if Christians are such wimps? If they don't know anything, if they can't talk about their faith, if they're always tongue-tied, if they can't kill the giant, you can do it. You have the same tools that I have. It's this word. It's just the word. The word of God is your weapon. Paul calls the Bible the sword of the Spirit. 
That's it. This. The word, nothing else. Everything else is window dressing. So, is that what you want for your life? Is that what you want for your kids? That they'll have that sort of the spirit? That's your only hope in this world. The sort of the spirit. So live a life in the power of the word that vindicates God's honor wherever he's placed you. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you. Not so much for David's example here, but for the fact that you honored your own name. Please help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.